Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Well, hello and welcome. Um, my name is Elizabeth Robinson. I'm director of the Grantham Research. I'm director of the Grantham Research Institute here at the London School of Economics, and I'm absolutely um, delighted to be chairing this event. So this event marks um, the launch of the Grantham Research Institute's Global Trends in Climate Change Litigation 2023 Snapshot Report. You can see why I'm looking at my notes, I can even memorize the title. But this presents an overview of climate litigation highlighting recent developments and future trends. And the report, the, the report is really widely read, read and cited by civil society organizations, policymakers, the legal community, judges, financiers, scholars, media all around the world, and I hope everyone here. Uh, so welcome to everyone here, our in-person audience, and also welcome to our, I, I say virtual audience, but I shouldn't say that, should I? Because you're not virtual, you just happen to be online. So welcome to our non-virtual audience who happens to be online and not with us in person. And you're all very welcome. This is also um, part of London Climate Action Week's um, flagship event series. So um, it's, really, it's really nice that it's part of this event, isn't it, as well? Because so it should be. Um, so, um, so uh, yeah, so... How, how the event's going to run, um, the event's going to start with a short presentation from the authors, Joanna Setzer and Catherine Hyam. Hey, so if I just um, introduce them to you, uh, she says turning her pages over a few hundred times. Obviously I know who they are, but just to get the titles <laughs> completely right. Um, uh, Dr. Joanna Setzer, she's an assistant professor and research fellow at Grantham Research Institute, and she leads the Climate Change Laws of the World Project. And Kate Hyam is a policy fellow, also at GRI, and um, she coordinates climate change laws of the World Project. You'll notice it's not just uh, those two up there, we've got an amazing panel for you today. And so what we're going to be doing is we're going to listen to a presentation, and then we're going to have um, our panellists are going to each have about five minutes each to respond to the presentation and the report. And um, so who are our panellists? Our panellists are... And I, I'm going to point you, but I can't move very far away from the mic, so could you wave when I mention your name? But our panellists are um, Dr. Bersha Odada, uh, a lecturer in climate change and environmental law and deputy director of the Law, Environment and Development Centre at SOAS, part of the University of London. We've got Professor Lauga Paulson. Uh, he's a professor of international relations and law at um, UCL. We've got Laura Ford. Laura, partner at DLA Piper. Uh, she leads the firm's Corporate Crime Investigations and Compliance Practice in the UK. I think you've got the coolest title tonight, probably. Um, and we've got Dr. Maria Antonia Tigre. Uh, she's um, the Global Climate Litigation Senior Fellow at the Sabin Centre for Climate Change Law. That's Columbia Law School, the other side of the pond. And uh, we've got Sophie Marginac. Uh, yep. <laughs> okay, by process of elimination. Um, but I just made sure everyone knew it was you. Um, the Climate Accountability Lead at Client Earth. And so, um, sorry, I have to talk on a little bit because there's stuff I have to say. But um, and after they've had a response, we'll just have a, a panel discussion amongst us for about 25 minutes. And then there'll be a good sort of 20, 25 minutes at the end for Q&A. And we'll be taking questions from the non-virtual online audience and for the in-person. So um, get your questions ready. I'm going to say this now and I'll say it again. Um, Try and keep your questions short, okay? And I'm, and I'm also going to say to panelists, keep your answers shortish as well, because we, we want to get through as many questions as possible. Um, I also need to tell you that the event is being recorded, and assuming we don't get any technical errors, which we can't guarantee, it will um, be available afterwards. 
And even better, more important, there's a drinks reception afterwards. And apparently if we walk outside, we will see it. So I don't need to give you any detailed direction. But you're not allowed to go to the drinks reception until we're finished. So I think, I'm looking for Emily and just checking for Emily. Have I done it? Oh, and Emily will be doing the questions from the, the online audience, right? Yeah. And is there anything else I'm supposed to have said, or can we go on to the exciting stuff? I, brilliant. I think we can now go on to the exciting stuff, so we will start officially. So I'm going to invite um, Joanna and Kate to um, give their presentation with some sort of key insights from the report this year. Thank you so much. Good evening, everyone. Welcome. It is wonderful to see you all here. Thank you so much for all of you who came in person and for those online. Uh, it is always a very happy moment, a very happy day of the year, the day that we launched the Global Trends Report, our uh, highlight uh, of the year. And uh, Kate and I are here today to give you a very short presentation of a over 40 pages long report. <laughs> Sorry for that. It turns out that this field is extremely interesting, prolific and exciting and 40 pages is really the shortest that we can do. So in this presentation, which is going to be very short, uh, because we want to give space for all our wonderful panelists to comment on specific trends, Kate and I will give you the highlights of the highlights of the report. And <laughs> this is um, the fifth report that we published. You can see there all the colors uh, from previous years and uh, the 2023 uh, big in the photo, which is already uh, online and we invite you all to download and read at your own pace. Uh, together with this flagship publication, I also want to call your attention to our climate change laws of the world platform, our uh, database of climate laws and policies, so all the legislation and all the executive uh, policies from all around the world now uh, more intelligent, powered by CPR. So with that, let me begin this presentation. I will give you some of the uh, bird's eye view of what we've seen in the numbers of litigation, then Kate will follow, emphasizing some of the uh, trends, specifically the key strategies and one of the findings that we have in the report, which is the increasing number in cases against corporates. And we stop there and the, the panel follows. So, first, cases, numbers. So this is uh, a, a graph that we put together with the data collected by the Sabin Center, uh, here Maria Antonia, uh, behind all of this. And we have the total number of cases identified in the world. So over 2,340 cases so far. You can still see that the US responds for the majority of cases, over 1,500. And you can see also how the curve continues to grow. And uh, two points that I want to emphasize first, Two-thirds of the cases, so a, a very significant number since 2015, since the Paris Agreement. This year's report, we look more closely at the 190 cases that were filed uh, in the last 12 months. But you can also observe, at least for the moment, that uh, it looks like climate education has peaked so far in 2021. Now, let's see the picture of the world and where this is happening. So uh, we have already over 51, at least 51 countries where we have seen cases of climate litigation. In this year's report, 
There are seven new jurisdictions that have entered the records. Some of these have filed cases before, but it just happened that we now have uh, got hold of those. These are Bulgaria, China, Finland, Romania, Russia, Thailand, and Turkey. Still very much concentrated in the global north, uh, as you can see here uh, from the map, but the global south continues to grow in terms of numbers and also in terms of the relevance of the cases. Some really interesting human rights and constitutional cases in uh, at least 135 cases in the global south. On top of all of this, we have now over 50 cases that have been brought before 11 international and regional courts. So here you have the UN treaty bodies and UNFCCC compliance committee. So this is the big picture of where litigation is happening. And now we start narrowing down to a specific type of case, which we of course tend to it calls our attention already in the media and in studies, so it is a subset of cases, but one that we tend to emphasize and we will in this presentation, the strategic litigation. Um, what do we mean here by strategic litigation? We're talking about cases that are trying to, uh, to bring change. There are cases that you will see strategies uh, across the world looking similar to each other, cases that are very well thought, and crafted, and we in the, in the report we explain more how we come up with this classification, which is not perfect, but I think it shows how in very recent years litigation has grown to be a tool of climate governance, something that the IPCC report even got to acknowledge. However, always important to keep in mind that not all strategic litigation is aligned with climate objectives. Here we have um, uh, in the last year, I've seen several examples of uh, also litigation, particularly in the US, challenging <laughs> net zero commitments and ESG. So this is what we're calling now the ESG backlash litigation. So uh, keep in mind that strategic, strategic litigation can be brought in both directions. So with this, I want to pass the word to Kate, and she's going to look at some of these strategies. Thank you very much, Joanna, and thank you all so much for being here tonight. As Joanna says, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, what is really the, the core of the report in some ways, our analysis of the different strategies and the trends between different cases uh, that we see arising. Um, you'll see we've got kind of three buckets here on the screen. Joanna has already pointed out that not all climate cases are aligned with climate action. So one of the things we look at in the report is those not climate aligned cases and the kinds of form that they take. And the other bucket I want to point to before I talk most about the climate aligned cases is this new and emerging field of just transition cases. So these are cases that are not necessarily opposing climate action per se, Actually, many of them are pushing for more ambitious climate action, but they are opposing the way in which climate policies have been developed by governments or corporations to date, and in particular, the distributional impact of those policies. Maria Antonia may talk a little bit about some of these cases, particularly the ones that we're seeing emerging in Latin America. But what I want to focus on here is to talk about some of the strategies that we've identified and that we discuss in detail in the report. We've identified nine kind of key types of strategies. I'm not gonna talk you through all nine, you may be pleased to know, but I do wanna talk about the three that appear in this list with the highest numbers of cases. 
So the first of those is a group of cases that we refer to as government framework cases. They're sometimes also called systemic mitigation cases. And these are cases that challenge a government's um, whole of economy, whole of society response to climate change. So often they're about the ambition of that climate response. They may be challenging uh, targets that a government has set in legislation or in its nationally determined contributions under the UNFCCC program, um, process. Or they may be challenging the implementation of climate law and policy. Uh, so for example, challenging climate change acts and their implementation. And this year we've seen a continued growth in these cases being filed. Um, we've seen many of them being filed, but also in new countries. So this year in Sweden, in Finland, in Russia, uh, and in Indonesia for the first time. And lots of those cases are filed by uh, civil society groups and youth activists. We may get into them in the discussion. The next group of cases I want to draw your attention to is the biggest group. And this is cases that we call integrating climate considerations cases. These tend to be focused on a specific project or a specific policy that a government has introduced or approved in a way that hasn't taken climate change into account. So a good example of this kind of litigation from here in the UK is the case of Finch and Surrey County Council that was just heard before the Supreme Court, which is looking at the development of a new um, oil well in Surrey and whether or not uh, Surrey County Council should have considered the impacts that would be caused to the climate from the oil that would be burned from the extraction of that well, as well as the um, emissions created during the operation. So what uh, those among you kind of familiar with the, the climate world would understand as scope three emissions. And this is a really important group of cases. It doesn't tend to get as much attention in the scholarship, um, but these cases are doing an awful lot of the work of climate litigation around the world. And then the final category that I wanna highlight here is what we call climate washing cases. So these are cases that concern um, misinformation by corporations typically, although there are some against governments. Um, those cases uh, often concern misleading green claims, so claims that a particular product line is net zero in its emissions or carbon neutral. We also include in this category cases that concern misinformation, uh, climate denial. Uh, and the, the interesting thing about this group of cases is that we've seen a massive growth in the number of cases in the last three years. Uh, so where this really wasn't a major uh, issue um, uh, in, in, in the past in our reports, uh, it's really kind of coming up in focus. And then the final point that I want to make, the final graph I want to show you before we hand over to our wonderful panel, is this graph that looks at um, the kinds of corporations that are being targeted in cases um, around the world. Historically, most climate cases have been filed against governments, but we're seeing increasing numbers filed against corporations. And you can see that in 2015, 2016, there were only a few sectors that were really impacted by this, mostly uh, companies involved in fossil fuel exploration and production or in energy generation using fossil fuels. But if we fast forward to 2021 and 2022, you can see this kind of rainbow effect appearing in the graph. And that's because more and more companies from more and more different sectors are now being targeted in litigation. So hopefully that's a trend that our panel will be reflecting on for you. And without further ado, I'll hand back to Liz um, to, to chair the discussion. Thanks again for being here.
again, just check you can hear. Uh, are we on? Yes. You don't have a little green light. Okay. Uh, um, th thank you so much. I think um, hopefully that's given us all a sort of a sense of why this really matters, and hopefully a, a sort of we've looked at some of those books. I thought I'm going to I want to read about that first in the report. We're going to find that, and do you say 40 pages of it? Yeah, that's not too long to read. That's um, a bit of bedtime reading or sitting on the tube. So hopefully everyone's put that down now for their bedtime reading. So um, let's go on to um, have some responses from our panelists. And so I'm going to ask um, Dr. Birsha Odaha. Birsha, would you like to start by giving some of your reflections, please? Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, firstly, massive congratulations um, to the team on the uh, release of this report, um, your amazing work kind of continues every year. Um, so I'm speaking a little bit just about the uh, one of the themes around human rights and climate change and give some reflections on the report um, and draw out a couple of the cases that are um, that were mentioned in the report. Um, so human rights have sort of been a critical aspect of lit climate litigation since kind of for the last 20 years nearly. Um, and one of the things I wanted to emphasize is how human rights litigation um, is quite powerful in sort of unveiling and communicating the real impacts on climate change. Um, and in the international arena this past year and highlighted in this report is the case of um, Daniel Billy and others against Australia in the UN Human Rights Committee, which I know Sophie and the Client Earth team were instrumental in its success. Um, this was the first time an international uh, legal body held countries accountable for human rights implications of climate change. There's a lot that could be said in terms of the legal aspects of it, um, but it also brought out um, climate, uh, the harsh realities of climate change on people's lives. So the communication itself to the Human Rights Committee, um, you know, you can access it online and it really kind of um, brings out or vividly captures the kind of personal experiences of individuals and, and the communities in the Torres Strait Islands um, and the impacts that they are endure, uh, enduring in terms of erosion of coastlines, drastic changes to vegetation, food scarcity, water scarcity, um, the devastating impact this is having on not only livelihoods but the cultural practices um, within the island um, and the anxiety that people feel about the future uh, living there. Um, importantly, this communication also connected um, the ongoing human rights crisis happening on the islands to colonialism. Um, uh, sort of through the voices of those impacted, showcased how past colonial practices uh, violently displaced people from islands, stole um, a generation of children, did all of this with, um, facilitated by legal frameworks. And, um, and now another phase is in effect. Um, through the destruction of more people's lives, histories, livelihoods, etc., um, based upon a kind of system that was um, predicated on that colonial system, right? So this kind of human rights litigation can really bring out these experiences, these histories, um, through you know communications such as that Daniel Billy um, communication, uh, that Daniel Billy case. Um, the second point I wanted to uh, say, building on that in a sense, is that the relationship between human rights and climate change um, also needs to be seen from the perspective of climate justice and also just transition, which was of course another theme in the report. Um, here we can pick out another case which is mentioned in the report uh, quite prominently around um, in South Africa uh, called, roughly called the Cancel Call case. It's actually, um, the report highlights various bits of litigation that are going on around coal mining in South Africa. Um, 
whether related to climate change or air pollution or other concerns. Um, these campaigns essentially aim to keep fossil fuels on the ground, in the ground. But if we sort of widen our perspective from the, the legal case, um, we realize that there are big aspects of climate justice and just transition that need to be uh, incorporated here. Uh, so in South Africa, about 80-85% of electricity is from, uh, from coal. There's a huge demand, especially in the last year because of post-COVID, Ukraine crisis, etc., for um, ex uh, coal exports from South Africa to places like Europe, where you know, last year German ministers were flying to South Africa to, to get more coal. Um, and coal remains a crucial part of their economy, providing domestic electricity, trade-related income, uh, employment, and so on. That's not to say these spaces aren't without contradictions. So in coal-related, coal mining areas, there's a lot of political conflict, assassinations. Um, many of the um, areas experience high levels of marginalization, water stress, and so on. Um, and then there's a difficult relationship in terms of labor because some unions are pro-coal, some, are, some are, are not, and so on. So in a sense, all of that is to say that in a country like South Africa or other countries that are um, having to go through uh, a transition, the concept of a just transition needs to be quite central. Um, so it's unsurprising in a sense that while there are human rights-based cases on mitigation, there's also an increase in cases around the just transition um, happening, and I'm sure Maria will speak also to, to um, some of these themes. Um, and I'm almost out of time, but I just have one last comment, which is around adaptation. Um, so climate mitigation, we speak a lot of, but adaptation is also quite vital. Um, there hasn't been as much adaptation-related cases as the report also highlights, or loss and damage cases. Um, and in a sense, it would be much easier to relate that to human rights, because clearly human rights impacts related to food, water, etc., require adaptation actions. Um, but that's not to say, firstly, that those cases are not happening. They are, it's just often they're not um, framed around climate change for a variety of reasons. We can come back to some of that. Um, but thank you again. That's great. Thank you so much. I think, you know, highlighting the climate justice is really important. The specific examples were great to hear. And I got a sense from your first example that sort of decolonization, um, decolonialization de 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 is sort of quite an important aspect that, you know, we might not talk about explicitly, but you, so there's all the historical legacy there. And of course, you know, it's not easy, is it, when, um, when in South Africa you need coal for electricity and the alternatives aren't quite there yet. So I think you brought out the complexities as well of, um, of these issues. So next We'll move to um, uh, Professor Lauga Poulsen. Um, Lauga, your reflections would be great. Thank you. Thanks. How are we for time? Are we okay? Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much. Uh, and also a huge congratulation for me to, to the team. Uh, you were sort of quite defensive in your presentation that you have 40 pages, <laughs> that we have to send you 40 pages about all this material, but I think it's, it's actually remarkably concise and clear and an extremely impressive effort to, to um, to condense all this quite complex and multi-dimensional material into a to a document like that. So and so um, so I would strongly encourage you all to read it. It's a very important sort of foundational document for for anyone who works in the field. Um, and um, it has also it's very important for the sort of work that I do. Now I think the reason I am here uh, is because I am I'm here in my private capacity, I should say, but I am. Uh, Apart from my day job, I'm chair of an OECD process uh, on climate policy and investment protection, focusing specifically on 
the global network of investment treaties and the way in which they are aligned or not with the Paris Agreement and net zero. It is an intergovernmental work program, but again, uh, I'm here in my, in my sort of own capacity. Um, but given that that is sort of the work that I do, I'm going to focus a little bit on those sorts of, those sorts of cases, which I guess falls in your, sort of, most of them falls in your unaligned bucket, right? Where you use, if you say you're a fossil fuel company, you use a treaty framework to target climate change measures or pursue claims that can have implications for climate change policy. And just sort of to illustrate how this part of, of the sort of quite complex landscape operates, I have another case for your report, <laughs> for your next year's report. And it tickled in yesterday, uh, uh, actually from here. Uh, so uh, Lansdowne Oil and Gas, British company, uh, has uh, triggered uh, an investment treaty claim against Ireland uh, for uh, the government of Ireland's refusal to grant a license to drill oil and gas offshore. We don't know that much about the case yet, but that is sort of the publicly available information. So here you have a British company that uses a treaty framework to which both Ireland and the UK are parties to pursue an international claim using international arbitration against uh, the oil and gas policy of, of, of another treaty party, in this case, Ireland. It's unclear, again, whether the, the climate objectives underpinning the, re, the refusal of this license, but I think it's quite clear that there could be climate implications of a case like that. And as far as I know, we have other experts here in the room, but as far as I know, I think it's Ireland's first energy charter treaty claim. Um, but it's not the first time that a British company has used the Energy Charter Treaty to pursue such claims against other governments. So the most, I think, famous example is the case of Rockhopper, where a British investor used the Energy Charter Treaty to pursue a claim against the Italian government's decision to, again, remove a license for offshore drilling off the Adriatic coast. And I'm not going to go through the case in any sort of detail, but the really remarkable thing, I think, about this type of case is the amount of damages that can be involved, okay? So this is not the only remarkable thing about these sorts of cases, but it's really a big one. Um, so in the case, there were sort of conflicting versions from the Italian government and from Rock Copper, not surprisingly. Um, but the end result was that while Rockhopper, the British investor, had spent somewhere between 2 million, maybe 20 million euro uh, in early phases of, 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 of sort of its project, it ended off with a compensation by the tribunal of about 240 million euro. Okay? And so this was not for the money that had been spent, right, for the sunk cost of the investment, it was for expected future profits. Right, of this project for a project, well, that hadn't really begun, right? So there hadn't actually been any previous profits from this project, but the arbitrators decided to use sort of an accountancy uh, method that incorporates expected future earnings from a project that hadn't begun, right? Um, and this is sort of one out of a number of, of, of similar cases that are beginning to emerge, right, where 
um, you have fossil fuel companies or fossil fuel investors that use treaty rights to pursue claims against governments, including for measures that have, sort of measures that have climate implications. And this is a trend that has sort of caught the attention, I think, of a lot of NGOs. It's caught the attention of a number of governments, which is why the OECD has initiated that process. And it's also caught the attention of the IPCC, which in its government-approved report noted concern about this part of international economic law's ability to facilitate these sorts of claims. And very recently, just a couple of days ago, the UK Climate Change Commission encouraged the UK government to take actions in this field, in this particular case, by leaving the Energy Charter Treaty. Now, a lot of the emphasis, and I'm going to stop there, right? but a lot of the emphasis uh, in this corner of the climate litigation landscape is on that particular agreement, the Energy Charter Treaty. Right? But it's worth noting that there is a global web of similar agreements, uh, bilateral investment treaties or investment chapters and free trade agreements that include the exact same substantive protections that allow for the same sorts of disputes to be launched by the same types of investors against the same types of measures. So there is an open question, I think, for governments, for activists, for researchers, about the extent to which that sort of legal framework is in fact aligned with climate objectives, whether it's in fact aligned with the Paris Agreement. And in order to have an answer to that, it's really crucial to have a good, solid evidence base, also from outside of the narrow field of investment treaty arbitration. And the reports and the work that you're doing here is crucial for, 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 for that project. Uh, and so again, uh, thank you for inviting me and thank you again for, for really an important and impressive piece of work. Thank you. Thanks, and again, um, another really brilliant example, right, specific example. I was thinking to myself, you know, uh, is this litigation because um, there's this feeling that shareholder interests have to be protected? And then we have to ask ourselves, you know, is this really what the shareholders want? You know, are they really thinking? And, um, you know, maybe we, who, who do we go, who do we focus on? Do we focus on the shareholders or the investors or, but it just seems there's going to be an awful lot of litigation. We've seen the numbers go up already and it feels like in both directions there's going to be litigation back and forth. And we talked about how the objective isn't really to have more litigation, is it? Um, um, but, but it? But these litigation cases are really important to understand and to be used for good, not just for bad. So um, I really enjoyed hearing that. Yeah, um, just, just depressing in a way, isn't it? <laughs> but there's a lot of work for us all to do for sure. Um, Laura Ford uh, from DLA5, we're going to ask for um, some of your reflections, please, now. And uh, good evening, everybody. Um, you'll get bored of all the accolades, but of course, <laughs> it was brilliant, and I loved reading your reports. Um, so you might wonder why a corporate crime lawyer is here, and I promise it will become clear as, as I go along. What I was really struck by in the report um, was the scale at which, at which climate washing cases are being pursued by the civil route. There's reference to nearly 60 cases, I think, and 54 of which pursued against corporates, um, which ties in very nicely to um, a research project that I've had the great pleasure of working on with Joanna and Kate and TIFF and others at GRI um, in relation to integrity and corruption risks in climate action. Um, we're hoping to report in September, so bated breath uh, for that when we get there. Um, but I certainly, in my anti-bribery and corruption practice, you know, in, in the near past, hadn't focused on climate at all, and one of the core goals of our research is to mainstream 
climate into the anti-corruption arena. Um, and so we've been looking at how um, those risks manifest, uh, integrity and corruption risks manifest in climate solutions. So of course, very much has been said in relation to uh, those risks in relation to delaying climate change, uh, sorry, delaying climate action. Um, but what about in uh, the way in which it could impact the efficacy of those climate solutions, for example, when we're looking at investing in renewable energy projects or purchasing carbon credits, for example. Um, and we consider this to be important because there are a number of risk factors here that are traditional corruption risk factors. So the scale of finance involved will often lead um, to corruption risks. The scale of transformation required is very much a present factor in relation to climate solutions um, and the urgency of the action that's needed. So all those things combined create a right ground for integrity and corruption risks to manifest. Um, and the risk of course being that where you have corruption in climate solutions, it leads to a lack of, of real progress. It gives the illusion of progress, but not necessarily true progress. Um, but where I've been interested to see the links between our project and the report that's been published today um, is in relation to this progressive scale of misconduct. Of course, the report focuses on civil litigation, and we see this progression from recklessness and civil wrongs. Um, for example, in relation to the accuracy of green claims. But, but when does poor integrity reach the level of corruption? When do you come into the criminal sphere? Um, so the research we've conducted to date, spoken to a, a range of fantastic experts in, where we've identified quite a large number of types of risk, but we've grouped them into three categories to give us you know, some, some kind of sense to understand what we're looking at here. Um, so we look at the misuse and diversion of finance flows, so your traditional bribery, corruption, money laundering, um, and those types of things which are of course catered for expressly in the criminal law already. Um, we look at abuse of processes, so failure to obtain free, pri free prior informed consent, uh, anti-regulatory lobbying and conflicts of interests, but where we now see this overlap is in the climate washing space which we identify as an integrity and corruption risk, appreciating there that you know, we're stretching the traditional definition of corruption there. We're looking at how in poor integrity can then lead through um, to this more significant misconduct. Um, so um, we're still working on our recommendations. So we'd be very delighted to hear from anybody who has some thoughts in relation to how can you mitigate these risks? Kind of what fire breaks can you put in to avoid for integrity leading through to the corruption um, environment? Um, but it might be that the stick of litigation actually is a core element of that. Um, it could be a key driver of an increased focus on governance and integrity um, in the deployment of climate solutions, which hopefully then mitigates the risk of that movement towards corruption. Thank you so much. Uh, again, um, I'm learning so much. I don't know about everyone else, but I certainly am. I think it's interesting, isn't it, that it was almost easy when we had climate deniers, but now when it's a sort of climate delay, it just... <laughs> was it that funny? I mean, it was, wasn't it? It was much more blatant, you know? Now it's much subtler, so people are going towards, you know, delaying. And that's much harder to deal with. It's, it's fascinating to hear that you're sort of trying to bring in the, the sort of criminality of it now. Um, which I mean is great, great to sort of bring in all these aspects of law. So um, that, that's great. And you know, I think 
we'll pick up on some of that, I assume, you know, when we, read the, when we all read the report, um, to, to see how that's panning out. Um, so next we'll go to Dr. Maria Antonia um, Tigre um, from Sabin Center. So share your, your, your can't speak, share your reflections, please. Okay. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, once again, congratulations. It's been uh, really an amazing work that you guys do, you know, analyzing all of that data that we have uh, on, in the database. It's really brilliant that you can actually be concise and, and do it in 40 pages and uh, assess all of those trends that we, we talk about. Um, all right, so I'll talk a little bit about the cases in the Global South and then uh, some of the just transition cases uh, that uh, Kate had mentioned. So, you know, I think we, most of the research and most of the discussions in the media is always uh, sort of focusing on the cases in the Global North, uh, partly because there are more cases, as we saw, but, uh, but also they gather more attention um, uh, than, than the cases in the Global South. And, you know, part of my, my whole research is actually trying to get more focus on these cases as well, because, uh, you know, despite being, you know, like the report said 135 cases, but 50 cases that have been filed since uh, 2020, so it's definitely increasing a lot. Um, and, and there are important lessons that you know, the entire world can learn from those. So obviously the, the nature of the cases is, is different from the cases in the global north because the nature of the emissions is also different, right? So the responsibility is different. Uh, in uh, most of these cases are based actually on human rights, so they're usually uh, countries with constitutions that are more recent, that usually have the right to a healthy environment recognized in the constitution. Um, and these cases are often targeting um, sort of the, the enforcement of existing legislation based on, on human rights, um, constitutional human rights, rather than actually trying to get you know, governments or companies to, to do more than they're already doing. So the, the whole, like I said, nature of, of the cases is very different um, and also trying to prevent degradation and trying to, you know, the report talks a little bit about this, how these cases are really trying to use the existing law and the existing legal system to, to enforce what's already there, right? So it's definitely a lot um, more complex, and especially I think bringing on, on what Bersha was saying about the, the colonial system and these cases, um, usually have to, to face some of these problems as well in addressing climate justice and um, seeing how the vulnerable communities are also um, dealing with, with climate change. Um, and I think, you know, part of my, my research focuses on Latin America and the, the just transition cases. We published a report recently that focuses on just transition uh, cases in Latin America based on, on the foundational work that Joanna has done on just transition litigation. Um, and it relates very much to, to this notion of climate justice because um, part of, of the goal of these cases is actually to make sure that um, that the transition that we all talk about, the decarbonization that is very much needed, is actually aligned with human rights uh, and with uh, environmental norms and that we don't forget that despite the emergency uh, that we're living in, the climate emergency and the need to, to do this transition very fast, right? Um, so these cases are usually brought by communities that are being impacted by decarbonization projects, and these can be you know, renewable energy projects or also sort of um, mining related to lithium or other types of uh, minerals that are important for you know, batteries and for and to making sure that uh, this transition happens. Um, and because most of these minerals are also in, in, in the global south, uh, that's 
their issues with the, the same enforcements of, of human rights and, and environmental norms, right? So um, while these cases are usually in, in, in the short term, they're not climate aligned, uh, in, the, in the long term, they actually are. So uh, that's sort of the complexity of categorizing those cases in, you know, in one bucket or the other because um, there are you know, distributional concerns, equity concerns uh, that they want to make sure, these communities want to make sure that whenever this transition happens that they're included uh, and that the benefits are also distributed amongst them, right? So, um, yeah, but I think what's important to note is that there are lessons there, right? And these cases could very easily be avoided uh, if they are if the transition, if the policies and the new laws and the projects that are adopted are actually uh, implemented in a way that is uh, respectful of those communities that are being impacted as well. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll, I'll stop here, I'm happy to talk more later. That's great, thanks. I think it's really nice, again, we've got that sort of low and middle income country perspective coming from you. I thought it's quite interesting, you, you sort of, you pointed out that the, the sort of the pace of transition, we have to transition fast, which makes it even harder to protect human rights, doesn't it? And even more important, of course, every year that we see emissions keep going up, we're going to have to transition even faster, and it's even going to be harder to protect rights. And I think if we're not careful, people are sort of going to say, you know, well, what matters more? Oh, well, human rights suddenly aren't going to matter if we're not careful. And I think it's great that you raise that. And, and some of these sort of contradictions during that transition. Um, are just really important and, and not to forget because they are going to be important otherwise um, either the transition won't occur or it'll occur in such a bad way that I think it'll sort of collapse anyway. Um, thank you so much. So um, we've now got um, Sophie Marginette from Client Earth to give us your reflections on the report. Thanks so much. It's lovely to be here with you all. I hope that, I hope that you can hear me. Um, Congratulations, of course, on the report. And of course, we read uh, the report very closely every year at Client Earth. But this year, I was particularly thrilled to see the section on, um, and quite a significant section on um, corporate and financial cases. So the cases that I would perhaps, um, I, th I think you've put them in uh, a few different buckets. They, they are. But together, <clears throat> we tend to think of these as financial risk cases. And um, I think that, and, and essentially what these cases have in common is in fact, um, were there to be a Venn diagram of climate change litigation and then shareholder litigation, these, these cases would sit at the center of that diagram because they are in fact part of a much wider group of, of litigation and that is um, litigation on behalf of shareholders to recover financial losses. Um, shareholders um, have certain rights under corporate <coughs> law to, um, to enforce corporate law, but also um, to recover losses where companies have been misleading or have misled shareholders. And, and minority shareholders have a suite of fundamental tools at their disposal. Climate change is now recognised by many institutional investors and in fact recognised by the law in the UK and the pensions regulation to pose a systemic economic, a systemic risk to the economy. So the, the financial risks that climate change poses um, include um, for, for oil and gas sector for example and coal sector transition risks, so the risk of um, converting um, from oil-based fuels to renewables, 
that will clearly have a significant impact on certain sectors. Um, but those risks also include um, commercial competitive risks, regulatory risks, etc. These are all disclosed in, in the annual reports of, of most major companies now. So investors are really also concerned about the fundamental and perhaps more significant systemic risk of climate change. And that is that those are the, the risks to financial stability and overall um, health of the economy in a world where runaway climate change makes um, a lot of economic activity much more difficult. So that focus on systemic risk has led a group of institutional investors to, um, to really focus questions and to put their attention onto um, uh, the highest emitting companies and to encourage them to move to align with the goals of the Paris Agreement. There's an initiative called the Climate Action 100 Plus that you, you, might, look to, you might like to look, at, look up if you are interested. Um, in the report, I was thrilled to see the mention of the Arch Coal case, which is such a great example of the economic risks of climate change. In around 2017-18, the US coal sector collapsed because of a fall in the coal price. And Arch Coal is an example of investors recovering losses after, so I think it was pension funds there, recovering losses after that collapse. Um, there are also, as I mentioned, um, misrepresentation and stock drop claims, and several of those being filed in the US, not just on climate change issues, but in relation to other environmental disasters, including the BHP dam collapse in Brazil. Um, and also, um, interestingly, this year we've seen institutional investors litigate to actually uphold their minority rights, and that was the case against Volkswagen in Germany, where a group of investors tested the law and the ability of minority shareholders to put resolutions to the board at their AGM. So this, this is absolutely a trend. I think that institutional um, investors are becoming um, more comfortable with using legal strategies for, um, uh, for systemic risk, and this can have um, some, uh, a regulatory role in the market. It can improve corporate governance and it overall can improve market performance. It's not just related to climate change. Um, the Swedish public pension fund AP7 um, was uh, active in a US case um, against Alphabet, the parent company of Google, in respect of gender um, diversity in their workplace. And then I believe after that litigation, there are a range of changes that were made. So this kind of litigation can have a positive impact, not just in climate, but across, um, across other issues. And it's certainly a trend to watch. Thank you. I think it's, um, it's great to get that emphasis on the sort of the, the corporate and, and financial cases. And um, I, I think uh, I was interested to know the sort of the, the potential role for minority shareholders. Um, I, I hadn't sort of appreciated that they could have quite a lot of power in this respect and they could actually drive change. So um, that, that, that was something new for me to hear. Thank you. So look, uh, should we just give a quick round of applause? Um, for Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ 
wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. And so I'm just, um, I'm just going to now pose a few sort of follow-up questions um, to the panel now. And, and as I said, there will be a Q&A, and it'll be in about 20, 20 minutes. So, you know, have your questions ready. We may not be able to, I keep telling you to have your questions ready. We may not be able to answer them all if too many people have their questions ready. But we'll do our best for the online and the in-person um, um, audience here. But I, I, if I just put it to the panel members, you know, sort of um, pick and choose if you want to answer this question. There might, there'll be others coming from me. Um, but... If we think about some other, other more traditional styles of cases, and, and those might be sort of challenges to, permit, to permitting processes, might they, are they being crowded out um, by cases using novel arguments? And do we care, I guess? Yeah, I can uh, try to answer that. Uh, I think there's obviously, you know, the, the permitting types of cases would definitely have a, a larger number uh, of those, and, but I think because they target specific projects and, and not do not have sort of a systemic um, impact, they don't get the same type of attention. Uh, and you know these these cases with novel arguments, which could be you know corporate cases or uh, cases using human rights, um, they they or you know other types. These are not the only ones, but they they have more. Or I guess the the systemic uh, mitigation cases against government. They have this potential for norm changing um, and to that if successful be replicated in other jurisdictions and have a much larger impact uh, in terms of you know, emissions reductions and, and types of responsibilities that could be um, assigned. So I think you know in the end, all of these cases push the needle a little bit, but these cases with, with novel arguments, the strategic cases like the report says, have this larger potential to actually create more change, more significant change. I can <clears throat> come in a little bit. Um, just uh, well, thinking about it from um, adaptation to build on Maria's point was on mitigation more, but um, on adaptation cases. Um, so a lot of as I was kind of my final point um, that I made was that um, there isn't sort of a coherent adaptation law. Rather, you know, when we think about adaptation, so it's like kind of um, responding to the impacts of climate change on the ground and, and allevi alleviating people's vulnerability to climate change. Um, it's quite fragmented, it could be related to the laws around water, laws around um, agriculture, laws around um, debt, etc, etc. Um, and so it doesn't necessarily, I think, need a kind of uh, a big novel case, uh, rather perhaps there's more thinking that could be done around how you could strategically look at different intersections of vulnerability that um, are faced in particular areas and make interventions in those spaces. So uh, just to give a really short example, if you're looking at, for instance, um, uh, rural areas in, in South Asia and in India um, experiencing drought, um, people are facing um, uh, the, the impacts are not just related to more or less rain, it's related to uh, things like the agricultural markets related to debt that people are enduring. Uh, the fact that they have to slowly, incrementally, their livelihoods are impacted, so they're having to move away, etc., etc. So if you look at all of the kind of intersections of the reason, the drivers of why they are vulnerable to climate change and becoming more and more vulnerable, um, it needs a response which uh, maybe requires a lot of traditional type cases, um, maybe coupled with a novel case, but maybe maybe a big novel case around adaptation policy isn't the most impactful thing. Um, at least that's one hypothesis for me. 
it, it got me thinking actually when you were sort of talking about the vulnerability that that, that I'm wondering to what extent, you know, the, the counter-argument is, well, climate change might be a small part of this, but like you say, so much else is about being poor and maybe mismanagement of resources or someone in some other area sort of, you know, deforest, deforestation for other reasons. So is it going to be really hard? The adaptation angle seems really more complicated than the mitigation angle in a way because, because of all the socioeconomic aspects. Is it going to be hard to, to see litigation work in that respect? Because the, the climate signal, the no, there's going to be so much noise around the climate signal. Um, yeah, I, I think there needs to be perhaps more reflection from lawyers, legal researchers, working with social scientists who've really unpacked how um, adaptation and vulnerability works and how it's very messy and complicated, and then try and think about it. Because a lot of people writing on adaptation and law um, have written about adaptation as a single thing that, you know, climate change is coming, people are vulnerable, we need adaptation, but without thinking through uh, some of the many reasons why people are becoming vulnerable and more vulnerable um, to these, you know, especially the slower impacts of climate change, not the big disasters. Thanks. Yeah. No, I, I was thinking. I don't know if anyone else wants to pick up on on that because. Um, yep. Uh, so so anyway. So okay. So um. So, so if um. Okay. So. It, what, what can, let, let's, let's go very practical now about what we can do. Um, what, what can corporate actors, what can state actors do um, to improve integrity and, uh, and also to mitigate the risk of litigation? Uh, we might just start with state. Okay. <laughs> can you repeat the question? <laughs> well, I, th I think it's, it's about the idea of it, what, what can be done by, let's done. take state actors to, to improve, to improve, to improve yeah. integrity and to sort of mitigate the risk of litigation. Right. Okay. All right. Well, so in my very narrow corner of this quite complicated sort of uh, uh, landscape, in the context of investment treaty arbitration, I think one response could be Governments don't really have anything to do with it because it's foreign investors pursuing these claims and arbitrators make the decisions. It has nothing to do with us, right? Right. Um, another response could be, well, it's the government's treaties, right? It's the government that signed the treaties and the governments have the ability to renegotiate, to change, to terminate, to reform, to clarify, right? Or to communicate with arbitrators and whatnot. So I think in the context of governments or states, if, if the question is what they can do in terms of improving the integrity of their response to this sort of landscape is, I guess from my perspective would be, do they have an answer to whether or not these agreements, international investment law, investment treaty arbitration, do they have an answer to whether all of that is aligned with the Paris Agreement? What's, what's the response, right? And there, there will be different responses. Reasonable people will disagree. But I think where we're at now is I think a lot of governments are finding themselves realizing, well, they probably have to have some sort of response because otherwise they're going to get all sorts of people on their back, right? And so I think just a starting point would be to say, well, think about how this part of international law aligns with the Paris Agreement. Whatever your answer is going to be, that's going to differ. But I think have a response and have it be a good one. I'm just going to come back to you there because, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a lawyer and don't do anything legal. So the lay person here is going to ask the idiot question, okay, which is, you know, you, 
It, it is difficult because, you know, I, I think there was a case against Italy. Mm. You know, you say net zero says, you know, we can't have any more new exploration, but, you know, what a, a company has um, sort of the rights to drill, and then they're saying it doesn't align with net zero. I mean, it, it seems very tricky, and yet they have the right to, to litigate against the country. Where does that right come from? Who gave them that right originally? And were they? And did that right come before we realized how problematic yeah. climate change was? Exactly going to be? right. So if you look at this country's web of investment treaties, right, they start in the 70s, right, and then most of them were negotiated up to the 80s, 1990s, early 2000s, and then we haven't negotiated that many recently. Um, so uh, you can be forgiven if you were an investment treaty negotiator in 1991 and you didn't have a good answer to the question I just posed because the Paris Agreement wasn't around, right? But today, I think uh, that's an increasingly difficult position to say, well, um, that's not really a, a question for us. So, um, but it is complex, but I think if you, if you look in the Paris Agreement, right? if you look, and I think a lot of people in this room have looked at the Paris Agreement, right? All the way up front, right? all the way under the top, right? you have 2-1-C, 2-1-C says, we, as a government, we have a commitment, a commitment to align finance flows with climate objectives, more or less. That's sort of hard to phrase. Well, this regime is about finance flows. It's about cross-border investments, cross-border finance flows. You have an instrument that supports finance flows, that protects finance flows, in some respects ensures finance flows. So arguably under the Paris Agreement, you have a commitment to align that instrument with climate objectives. And the question, I guess, a government has to ask itself is, is it really aligned? I think that's sort of the starting point here. Um, well, I'm going to, let, let's all watch this space carefully yeah. Yeah, as to what, who, who wins what, where, when. Right. Um, uh, should I repeat the question now? Let's see if we can get some perspectives on um, corporate actors again, um, improving integrity and mitigating the risk of litigation. I can discuss um, consumer law because this, this is an area that we have done a lot of work on. And, and really, I'd say probably the most um, fertile, one of, you know, some of the most fertile ground for litigation and regulatory complaints as identified in the report. Um, but also, interestingly, consumer law regulators are incredibly rapid and quick in their responses to um, what appears in um, advertising, which is essentially the zeitgeist. So we have seen a huge explosion of sustainability advertising since the Paris Agreement was signed, and particularly around Glasgow. However, regulators have now also, are now also stepping up, and um, as almost as quickly, um, keeping up with those PR agencies and issuing new guidance and new rules and new law on um, greenwashing, green claims, and that's not just in Europe, but globally as well. So there's a huge amount of um, change in the space now. Companies need to be across that. Their, advertise their advertisements um, can no longer make vague or general green claims about sustainability. Their claims need to be targeted, specific, and justified by science, and that's um, under the new EU reforms to the Unfair Consumer Practices Directive. There's really, really detailed um, proposals in there, including that um, companies will actually need to verify scientifically any claims that they're making in advertisements. So I expect that we will all experience in the world around us, in the world of advertising, a real shift 
in the kinds of green claims that are being made over the next few years as these new reforms kick in? Well, thank you. Yeah, I think that's, um, that's a really nice angle on the consumer side. I think it's the first time we've sort of had that on this discussion today, so thank you. Uh, so, a bit on the um, corporate perspective, yeah. if I can. Um, so, the question is around how can you improve integrity to mitigate litigation risk? Um, and a, a huge part of my practice is compliance programs for companies. And I was interested to hear what you were saying, Bersha, about the human rights intersection with climate. Um, because you can look at that in a corruption perspective as well. So, um, you know, we've looked at how the UNGPs actually match pretty closely to the guidance from the Serious Fraud Office, the Department of Justice, on how to have an effective compliance program. And you can apply the same kind of thinking in a climate context as well. Um, and the way I, when I started off my earlier um, section talking about how I and my role hadn't previously been thinking about climate, the more that we can do that to incorporate that into that more traditional compliance environment, um, you can get some quick wins because there's so much compliance fatigue. Companies and their, uh, their people, they're just peppered constantly with these requirements. But if we incorporate human rights and climate into the pre-existing anti-bribery and corruption controls, because they've been around for a long time, and 1977 the FCPA came into force, businesses are really used to that now. Um, so it's a nice, I was gonna say it's a simple way, None of this is simple, I'm sure, um, but there's a framework there, and it's a step ahead along the way. Fantastic. So, look, I think, I, I've got another question, I'm going to save that for the end, for the quick-fire end, because I think, hopefully, there's people, because um, I know I kept wanting to ask more questions, so I'm sure there's people in the audience wanting to ask questions, too. We have, how many, how many roving mics do we have? Two. Wonderful. So, if the roving mics sort of spread, and if people put their hands up, and um, I'm not necessarily going to go for the first people to put their hands up, but I can see, oh God, I see so many. Okay, I'm going to go, um, one there in the back, yeah, dark blue shirt first. Don't start talking till I've selected three. Um, um, number two there, oh, light blue shirt, so I can't really pick blue shirt. And um, check shirt there, yeah, and that'll be our first three. And then we'll take three online that Emily's going to um, prepare for us. Again, can I please ask you to keep the questions short? Um, I don't think everyone will, sorry. Can I? <laughs> I'm not allowed to stand up, am I? Because the, the people um, online don't hear me. Can I ask you to keep the questions short and concise? And um, not everyone may answer every question because we want to keep going through the questions. So we'll have those three questions first, please. Okay, so very briefly, um, I wanted to ask whether there was any movement in the alternative dispute resolution space because I know this is about litigation, but I think there's a lot of potential in terms of like mediation, these types of procedures for shareholder action to take place, but in a more collaborative way. Oh, you're welcome to say who you are as well oh, before your Oh, I'm question. Jane. I'm a second year student. Um, I'm on the UCL HKU dual degree program. Thank you. Yeah, I used to work for uh, Environmental Think Tank. Okay, anyways. Um, oh, can you just give the mic to this person here, and then you can go third as the mic's coming, yes? Um, <coughs> sorry. Hi there, I'm Will. Um, I'm um, asking my question very much as a lay person, not as a lawyer. I work as a TV producer. Uh, it might be slightly off topic, so apologies if that's the case. But um, what I wanted to ask the panel was um, around the very disturbing trend that we're seeing at the moment to close down all avenues for protest and for um, like civil resistance against climate change. We've seen it with the, the new anti-protest laws. George Monbiot has an article in The Guardian today about the preemptive use of injunctions against potential protesters who 
may you know may have to pay their own costs uh, uh, pay the costs of the injunction rather that's directed against them and I just wondered if there's the panel had any opinions on whether there's you know is there any legal way to fight that thank you and the third for this cluster Hi, my name's Jack, and I'm a uh, reporter with ESG Investor. Uh, perhaps unsurprising, my question is investor-related, uh, which Sophie did touch on a little bit in terms of institutional investors. Uh, my question is, how are investors getting involved in climate litigation, and what are the implications of climate litigation for investors? Great, so we've got a question um, on investors and litigation on alternative dispute litigation space, and then what about the problem that there are avenues for protests to being closed down? Jump in, takers. And I, I think you guys can Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, to take that question about um, protest and um, the shutting down of space for civil society to really raise very legitimate concerns, obviously, about the climate crisis. And this is a, a phenomenon that manifests differently in different parts of the world. Um, uh, I was hearing earlier today in a workshop about how Latin America is the most dangerous place for environmental defenders uh, in the world. So I think we need to, to think of that. But if we look at the European context and the UK context, um, which is you know, what, what you've directly asked about, I think that is uh, a legal mechanism available to um, try and address some of these cases. It will be difficult for people to um, use. But we have seen in the past cases taken through the Strasbourg system using the European Court of Human Rights, the European Convention of Human Rights, looking at uh, whether or not measures taken against protesters are proportionate. Um, and we've seen that used in cases involving harsh sentences for protesters, in cases involving injunctions, and also in cases where um, the government or a company is using what we would call in the sort of legal space a strategic litigation against public participation. Um, so trying to use the law uh, to put protesters off. And we've seen some good judgments from the Strasbourg court uh, in that area as well. So that is obviously a long and cumbersome process to addressing something that it's very concerning has now entered into legislation in this country, um, but that it does exist. And I think we probably will, unfortunately, see litigation um, in that area. And any responses to the other two questions? One was very specific on alternative dispute litigation yeah. and one on the investor space. I, I can take the investor one. Um, I mean, institutional investors are starting to get involved in climate change litigation. We had investors with over 12 million shares in Shell support our derivative claim against the board, and um, that included the UK's largest pension fund, Nest. Um, as I mentioned, there was a claim recently in Germany against Volkswagen brought by a group of, of institutional investors, and in the US there's quite a lot of um, of uh, ESG-related uh, litigation by institutions. Um, so I'd say that there's a, a small, uh, quite small, but perhaps an emerging um, trend. And do we have any expertise on alternate dispute litigation? I, I, can, I can answer that question, but um, please do jump in if anyone else wants to. I think one um, kind of alternative dispute um, mechanism that we've seen used in a number of climate cases is 
a mechanism called um, National Contact Points that were set up by the OECD uh, or under the auspices of the OECD by um, uh, member countries uh, to monitor the implementation of what is known as the OECD guidelines on multinational enterprises. And we have a, a colleague in the room with us who's um, just co-authored a paper looking at how um, all of these uh, or, or looking at the, the historic kind of use of these cases, uh, these mechanisms in climate cases. Um, so maybe you want to connect with Katja, maybe have a, have a wave, Katja, uh, <laughs> at the end of this session and, and talk more about that. Great. If no one else has any responses, Emily, do you want to um, give, uh, read, read out some questions from the online audience? Oh, you need a mic, yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Um, so uh, the first question is from Richard at Greenpeace, um, and they've written, given the long time frame of litigation and the tension with the need for a fast transition, is the real impact of litigation against corporates the threat factor it generates for others? To what extent should we be looking to governments and regulators, including securities regulators, for a more rapid and effective enforcement? And then the next question is from Simon Topfer, who's an alumnus of LSE and SOAS, and it relates to a point raised by Bersha and many others. You've spoken about litigation cases at the nexus of human rights and climate and their significance in holding businesses accountable for their climate impacts. Do you believe that legislation at the nexus of human rights and climate, such as the EU's Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive or France's Corporate Duty of Vigilance Law, can act as additional vehicles to specifically hold companies more accountable. And the third question is from Zoe Ney, a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne. How do the panelists understand the prospects and limitations of litigation focused on current and future loss and damage? So on current and future? Loss and damage. Loss and damage. I was wondering if you we were going to talk about loss and damage. Great. So any panelists want to answer any of those three questions? I can start. Uh, I'll answer to the question about governments. And I, I, I think the question starts with a very important point about uh, the time that lawsuits can take. And I would add it's not that they can take long to progress through courts, but also they are likely to be quite expensive. And if that wasn't enough, the result isn't certain. So you know, add all of that, and it, it, so the question makes a lot of sense. Why wouldn't we be focusing at governments? Because finally, governments are the ones who legislate, who give the directions of uh, where society should go and, and create the uh, long-term uh, indication of what corporates and sectors should be doing. And that's happened. So until uh, still today, the majority of cases have been filed against governments. These cases have been filed against governments in different capacities in, in what we speak about the framework cases, so they can change your systems, phase out coal, have more ambitious targets, enforce legislation, or on what we also spoke, challenging a, a specific license to a specific project. So that has been the case, and I think we, in, on top of that, we can also think about the, the, the ideal scenario where is uh, when we see less litigation and we see legislation which already exists galore, and you know, our, our, our database shows thousands and thousands of existing legislation, and that legislation is being followed both by governments and by corporations, but 
the issue is while that is not smoothly happening or in the speed that is necessary, litigation, uh, we, we spoke about that, uh, I think Laura said, the stick. So the stick is there and is a reminder that if the legislation is not being enforced, then you know, litigation might come in. Um, so I, I might just add to that to say that um, the criminal law is used for the most egregious conduct. And I wonder if we might move towards a world where the type of conduct that we're talking about, instead of being required to be pursued civilly, you have the threat of the criminal law. And then rather than bringing claims, we have that preventative focus to it through the fear of breaching criminal laws. But of course, for criminal law to be effective, you have to have robust, well-resourced, well-respected regulatory environment, regulators, law enforcement. Um, authorities, um, and you need to have the legislation in place to do it. So, you know, there's, there are a few steps along that process, but I wonder if we might ultimately start to move more towards criminal enforcement. Talk about the loss of damage uh, question, perhaps. Um, I think what we have now are it's sort of, I think there are only two examples of, say, there are almost loss and damage cases, but not quite there yet. Uh, but one is the, the RWE uh, case, which I think has a little bit of a loss and damage um, aspect in there in which the, this Peruvian farmer sued uh, RWE. And there's a similar case that was filed recently, more recently in Switzerland, that was brought by communities in Indonesia that has a little bit more of that loss and damage perspective. And, but obviously, you know, as we see the effects of climate change get worse, uh, and we do see more uh, loss and damage, and the loss and damage fund that was recently created doesn't, um, is not sufficient to address that. We're definitely going to see more, and you know, as if, if these two cases are successful, I think we're, we're, it's going to be definitely the precursor to increasing um, this type of litigation as well. And Vash, maybe you could address the question of human rights. Um, yeah, Alexi, just. And oh, loss thing, and, and then uh, I, I think actually, but yeah, um, yeah, loss and damage. Um, building on what Maria said, those were obviously two international cases, um, but you know, states are already in a way handing out compensation or some form of uh, redress for for loss and damage within their own states, whether it's kind of compensation things around droughts, um, or even for instance, this Dan, uh, case, the Daniel Billy litigation, the uh, Human Rights Committee um, uh, kind of effectively. Uh, getting the Australian government to, to pay some form of loss and damage. Um, so it, what's interesting in human rights and climate change is if you have a case in the South, uh, it has to kind of link up to um, how, well, these international, this, the international framing, um, because it's, it's unjust in a way if a, if a government in the South is having to pay that loss and damage um, within the country, right? Um, in terms of business and human rights, I think that was the second question actually, um, maybe Kate and Joanna can come in. I think in terms of the vigilance, there has been some litigation already, um, from what I understand. Um, and so legislation is obviously very um, useful. A treaty, international treaty, would be very useful in this, um, in this space, but um, I think they can add some more on that. Yeah, maybe I'll come in on this and, and then uh, Joanna or Maria Antonia could come in as well. Um, I think it is remarkable that in France, where there is the duty of vigilance law, which is a law that essentially uh, requires companies to do uh, due diligence and understand what their human rights and environmental impacts are, and then um, take steps to 
mitigate those impacts and then take steps to remedy any impacts that have been caused. We have seen a lot of litigation, climate-focused litigation, using that piece of legislation already. We've seen um, litigation in other jurisdictions which don't have quite as clear uh, pieces of legislation, also bringing in some of the same international principles. But, but France has a real concentration, and I think it is because there is legislation. So I would absolutely anticipate that if Europe passes the Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive um, that is currently under negotiation between Europe's legislators, that's going to produce a lot of uh, litigation and a lot of questions because one of the challenges with this type of legislation is that it says you have to assess what your human rights and environmental impacts are but then it leaves quite a lot of discretion to companies to decide what are my human rights and environmental impacts and those companies are not necessarily going to use the same definitions or the same understandings of the way in which they're contributing to the problem as civil society or the people affected by the company's operations. And so I think we're going to see lots and lots of litigation coming up around that. If you could just add, um, I think one of the most interesting things about these uh, cases in France, using, in France using the duty of vigilance law is that the extraterritorial responsibility aspect that is included in those cases because it, you know, it, uh, part of a huge aspect of these cases that you know activities of companies in Africa in Latin America of companies based in France need to obviously it should be very obvious that they should align with the human rights responsibilities that they would still have in France right um, but then if you take this to you know a climate uh, the climate angle the if, you, if it's illegal deforestation if it you know it's not aligned with you know several other human rights um, norms that are obviously in effect, uh, climate change has an effect to, uh, it obviously needs to, to continue with that, uh, with these same obligations. So I think it's that extraterritorial responsibility aspect of these cases once they are decided could be really significant and I think that's the sort of the huge potential that it has uh, as well. So um, I'd like us to hear some more questions and more answers. Um, so I'll tell you what I've seen. I'll tell you what I can. Oh God, I see so many hands. Lighter blue shirt. Ian, yeah. Um, uh, Jack, grey jacket. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, I like the wave. Yes, black shirt with nice necklace. Um, I'll tell you what. I tell you what, if you ask, keep your questions really short and answers one answer each. One, two, or four, five. Okay. I know I'm supposed to do three at a time. So short questions, short answers. Let's let's get through them. Um, yes. So my question is, it's probably mostly for Lauga, but for everyone, um, if multi if multilateral gridlock were to preclude some kind of reform or, or universal decision, and states opted to say leave these treaties. Is that really effective given the timeline horizon of the, the sunset clauses, for example, in the Energy Charter Treaty? I'm sure you have a strong opinion on that. And kind of relatedly, um, not, not only about ISDS, but in, in the multilateral forum in general, one topic that didn't come up is the International Court of Justice um, advisory decision. And I want to provoke you all and ask, will that really matter? given that that court has no enforcement mechanism and that the state that brought it does not accept compulsory jurisdiction of the court. Technically, that was two questions. Sorry. When it comes to answers, they'll only answer one. Question number two, thank you. 
Well, uh, the first is actually... Uh -huh, I, I, one, one only. It's not a question. I was saying it's not a question. But actually to uh, add on the answer given to the question by the producer gentleman that actually in some jurisdictions public participation has been used to advance rather than uh, curtail climate litigation. For instance, in, in the famous coal case of Kenya, um, the ruling was on several grounds, including lack of effective public participation. And that is why the NET actually cancelled the license that was issued by NEMA. Now, my question was, looking at all these four reports, I was expecting that the number of cases in the global south would have grown from the first report up to this fifth report, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Would you have some reasons as to why this hasn't happened, especially in Africa? Thank Great you. Great question. Thank you. It's worth wait. I like that one. Three. Who's number three? Yep. <laughs> you all know your numbers. Yeah, well, thank you for the chance. Um, Lara Devatsidis, I'm from the International Bar Association. It is a double-barred question, forgive me, I'll ask it really quickly. On Billy et al, on damages, has Australia moved to issue them? I know that um, the HRC made recommendations on what the damages should be, but is there an update on that? And Sophie, um, any information would be great, And because it's one thing for them to outline what the damages should be in another to actually deliver it. And then the second question is related to that. Will this report start looking at the deliverance of damages um, as part and parcel of the overall package of the usefulness of litigation? Thanks. Okay, quick four and quick five. No two-part questions. <laughs> uh, just excited about your data. Do you track um, outcomes, especially success rates? Thank you. Oh, nice question. They're all great questions. And five. Thank you. There were iconic cases regarding future generations, but now in the last report, the categories mentioned one, just once. Uh, what happened with future generations? Future generations. Great. Okay. And, you, and those, those were short and sharp, so short and sweet answers, please. You're only allowed to answer one question each. Think carefully. Okay. Uh, there was a question to me on sunset classes. So just very quickly, the, the, the core challenge that was alluded to in the question is that if you terminate an agreement of the UK terminates an investment treaty tonight, then the protections in that agreement will in principle be in effect for up to 20 years into the future for all existing investors and they will be able to pursue, pursue these sorts of claims. In fact, the case against Italy that I mentioned was after Italy had left the Energy Charter Treaty, right? So it already left and then still there was a, this sort of plan. So that is a core core challenge because this intricate web of the agreements are sort of locked in and that makes the arguments for multilateral, bilateral, plurilateral reform discussions ever more important, uh, which is exactly why the OECD has launched those sorts of discussions. Great. This one down. Um, I was coming on the uh, outcomes. Um, thank you for the question. We still monitor that. So well, first uh, clarification. We do a very direct uh, measure of that, and by that I mean we look at what are the drivers of the case. Is it a line non aligned motivation? Is the decision a line non aligned? Therefore, the outcome is a line non aligned. So, that, that type of assessment we still do, and we have uh, around 50%, just over 50% of global cases that have uh, outcomes that are favorable to climate protections. You would think, 
it's half, what does it mean? Uh, compared to other areas of litigation, that's a quite high uh, result in terms of being positive, but you have to keep in mind that the majority of cases is still ongoing, so this is a small fraction of a fraction of cases. And a quick clarification on Global South cases, uh, they have uh, increased uh, over the last years. If you look at our first report, I think we had 20, or something like that, a really small number. Uh, so we, we, uh, they, our coverage is increasing thanks to the network that Maria Antonia has been putting together and, and, and keeping going. And uh, there's an, there are two issues there with numbers. One is that we have often less access to those courts, to languages, to uh, online information on cases. And secondly, and very importantly, I would say that often cases in the global south, they are very relevant to climate, but they are not framed as climate cases. So there, uh, just to give an example, in Brazil, there are over 9,000 cases of deforestation that are obviously crucial for <laughs> this problem that we're talking about, but that we are not including because there hasn't been mentioned to climate change on the filings or in the decisions. So, there's a, a, a quite a significant limitation there in the, our narrow uh, definition of what climate litigation is. There was an Australia-specific question. Yes, um, I can be quick. Um, the answer is no, no compensation yet, but there will be a press release issued about that in the next two weeks. And, and, and your question was ne next, the future generations. What a perfect way to end. Future generations. <laughs> this is why we're doing it, right? Not for us. We trashed the planet. What about the future? So, so just on the point about future generations not getting a significant mention in the report, it's not because cases concerning future generations aren't still relevant. It's because the cases where we saw major developments in the last 12 months weren't necessarily those cases. But there are still a large number of cases uh, bringing these kinds of arguments uh, on behalf of youth plaintiffs, on behalf of future generations, and it's very much still a live issue, I think. Um, I don't know if you want to comment on it or if anyone else does. Can you comment on the ICJ question very quickly? Yes. Uh, I think uh, I mean, it's, it's important to, to think about that norm forming issue, even though you know, the ICJ is not going to say, you know, the UK, you're not doing your part, but there are going to establish certain responsibilities that could then be enforced by, by national courts. So I think that part of norm forming, you know, sort of a, um, cutting the line a little bit and having a, a court at the international level saying that there are obligations and then that can be enforced at the national level. So we have two minutes left. So what I'm going to ask the panel, I'm, now I can only give you 10 words each, okay? Because we've got two minutes. <laughs> ten, words. <laughs> 10 words. But I know you'll take liberties. Okay, because just, just throw it out there. What do you guys think will be the next frontier cases of climate litigation. What next? So you don't need more than 10 words. What's the next frontier? Is that just a really tough question to be asking? Or you could just say thank you very much. <laughs> and can I just remind you, because there's a drinks reception afterwards, apologies to those online, but for those in person, plenty of opportunity to ask questions at the drinks um, reception. But if you want to answer where the next frontier will be, it's not compulsory. You still get a well, drink. I can mention one thing that I find that really interesting lately, and I think it's going to increase. It's, um, you know, similarly to what has happened with future generations and children's cases brought by children, I think vulnerable groups having an active voice in climate litigation and bringing more cases, it's definitely uh, the next frontier, you know, indigenous groups, women, and so on. Mm. I, that. <laughs> uh, I might say with the proliferation of corporate statements on climate, more action relation to those. 
So can I just can we just give a huge round of applause to clearly our um, our authors, our panelists. directly involved in the climate change laws of the world work. So please, I know there's at least three, because Mikhail's here from outside. Stand up, all of you. There's Emily, there's Tiffany, there's Ian, there's Mikhail. Who else is there? Because I'm... Sarah. Sarah. <laughs> just, just give a wave, because if you want to talk to people who've been involved in the drinks, these, these are the, the other people involved. So thank you very much. Let's, um, let's go have a drink. Thank you so much. Thank you. Subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.